0: This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. So today's show is pretty special because it features a reunion that many of us in the music world thought would never happen. It's a conversation with all four members of Talking Heads, David Byrne, Jerry Harrison, Tina Weymouth, and Chris Franz, all sitting in the same room with Pitchfork's contributing editor, Andy Cush. Let me give you some background. In December of 1983, five albums into their career and hot off the success of Burning Down the House, their biggest hit to date, Talking Heads set up shop at Hollywood's Pantages Theater for a run of epic concerts. And they brought in director Jonathan Demme to film those shows. The staging was experimental. It began with David Byrne's solo and grew to include a massive ensemble of musicians that notably featured Parliament Funkadelic's Lynn Mabry and Bernie Worrell. The setlist ran through Talking Heads' favorites and deep cuts, as well as solo Byrne tracks, a Tom Tom Club hit, and even an Al Green cover. Stop Making Sense, the documentary that was made from those shows, was released the following year to rapturous response. It would go on to become iconic, frequently referred to as the best concert movie ever made. But the band soon descended into acrimony. It got a little messy and involved lawyers and the band trading barbs in public. They remained on the outs for about three decades. But A24's new 40th anniversary restoration of Stop Making Sense has brought the band back together to celebrate their legacy. At its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, the group sat down with Spike Lee to discuss the film. And before its New York screening at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Talking Heads joined Pitchfork for what proved to be an open-hearted love fest of an interview. Here's David, Jerry, Tina, and Chris, interviewed by Andy Cush. Take a listen.
1: Thank you all so much for doing this. It is a tremendous privilege to be talking with you all. Would you mind going around and just saying who you are into your microphone?
2: My name is Tina Weymus. I'm the bass player. I'm almost a Scorpio.
1: I am a Scorpio. <laughs> oh, you are. But
2: I'm... <laughs> well, and uh, I was born on a Wednesday, so I'm full of woe.
3: Oh. <laughs> I'm Chris France, the drummer, and uh, very happy to be here.
4: I'm Jerry Harrison. I play guitar and keyboards. I'm David Byrne.
5: I play guitar and sing.
1: Well, first I just want to say congratulations on the new release of Stop Making Sense. I saw it at the IMAX in the Upper West Side the other night, and uh, it's really an incredibly powerful thing. Even as somebody who's seen the movie probably ten times, it felt sort of like seeing it for the first time. I was curious, when you all were watching in Toronto, what sort of feelings were coming over you?
4: Well, IMAX was just a whole new thing. Yeah. And it was big.
5: Yeah. (laughs) Really big. I'd seen a a screening of the regular scale movie about a month previous. So it was just like me and three other people or whatever in a screening room. So then I was like examining, you know, just looking at how it looked and sounded, which was kind of incredible, all the improvements that had been made. And I'm I'm also looking at myself and thinking, what a strange guy! What a guy, What? Who is that guy? Do I know him? <laughs> <laughs> but then in Toronto with a packed house, yeah, I completely was just all together with the audience, shouting and clapping and dancing and all, all that. Mm-hmm.
1: Were there uh, moments from the film or memories of playing those concerts that uh, you hadn't? <sighs> thought about in a while
3: that were surprising or happy things to see the whole thing made me very happy from beginning to end the film kind of snowballs yeah and it it starts off great and it just gets better and better as it goes on And, and I mean excuse me for blowing our own horn but God damn. (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) One of the things that's so great for me
1: about Stop Making Sense is this beautiful mixture, maybe even tension, between moments that seem like they're really precisely choreographed and moments that seem like they're totally spontaneous and in the moment. It creates a cool effect, at least for me, where you're sort of wondering about everything. Like, uh, was this planned? There's a moment where, Jerry, you're dancing with the backup singers, and I've always wondered, like, you know, was that a cue, or was that just something that you felt moved to do? And uh, I imagine that that was an effect that you guys were sort of deliberately after on some level, and I, I'm just curious sort of what went into creating that, and, and if you could talk a bit more about that uh, aspect of the whole thing.
4: You know, we have been playing this show for the most part of a year. yeah. And so a lot of what you might call choreography or whatever sort of happened spontaneously. And then that was fun last night. Let's see if we can work it in again. But that didn't mean that there's points where you go like, oh, am I getting a little off from them? And you're like looking over funny, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. there are moments that are of that night as well right. contained within an idea of like let's interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: There's one moment where I'd like to wrap my guitar cord around Lynn Mabry's legs, <laughs> and I would do figure eights around the girls as they were singing, and and Lynn was always so clever at getting out from that tangle. <laughs> yeah.
5: As Jerry said, a lot of the movement and things like that it emerged organically from playing, and then yeah. you do something, and you go, "That's great. Let's keep that. Do that again." So it still kept that kind of spontaneous right, vibe because right. it wasn't something that was kind of put on to the show. It kind of emerged out of the music. Once it's formalized, I mean, once you go, oh, okay, we're going to do that at that point in the song the next night, and maybe no. the next night after that, then it's a certain amount of artifice. Yeah. But it emerged out of something very organic. Right, right. So it feels like it's just happening. Totally. Yeah.
0: Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore.
3: Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions
1: in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech.
0: Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet.
1: Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power in the exciting and terrifying world of AI.
4: It's inevitable that the Internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well
0: make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real.
3: The entire point of the phone should be On some level, to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly, wherever you get
1: your podcasts. I wanted to talk a bit specifically about uh, the music that you guys were making at the time. The transition between what you were doing around Remain in Light to what you were doing with Speaking in Tongues. It struck me that the music is informed by a lot of the same things, but Remain in Light presents this, like, very sort of disorienting, sometimes challenging version of it. And Speaking in Tongues presents this, like, totally joyous, uplifting version of it. And I was just curious about how you approached Speaking in Tongues differently from Remain in Light. And if you were thinking actively about making something that was a little bit more open and inviting and, and happy.
4: There was definitely one very distinct thing. When we did Remain in Light, it's sort of modal. You're not going to the chorus and going to chord changes. Yeah. And that presented a struggle when David was writing the lyrics of Mm -hmm. how do we make a lift that comes out of here? So when we did Speaking in Tongues, we made sure that we built in chord changes and like sections where it really felt like it went someplace else in a way that a traditional song does. You know, it was still this sort of interplay of layered music. Yeah. But from a point of view of the structure of the music, it was quite
3: different. Right, right, right. And also, we didn't have Brian Eno. And it's not like we fired him. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> but but uh, I guess he felt, and probably we felt like, We'd done three albums together, and, and now it was time to do something different. Well, he and had tried to quit before Rain Life, Light, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so we produced it ourselves. I remember going to Tony Visconti mm-hmm. and meeting with him at the Hilton Hotel where he mm-hmm. was packing his bags to go to London. I said, Tony, how'd you like to produce the new Talking Heads album? We're going to make one pretty soon. And he said you don't need a producer. You just need a good engineer. Produce it yourself.
5: <laughs> so that's, that's very generous what, of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So
3: that's what we did. Cool.
5: I remember yeah. we made a point to go for this recording engineer, uh, Alex Sadkin, Yeah. who passed away. But he'd done a lot of records that we really liked. He did like these mm-hmm. Grace Jones records mm-hmm. that we really mm-hmm. liked and some other ones. And I think we thought... Love loved the kind of clarity and, and kind of punch yeah. that he got on uh, those records. And we thought, we would like to continue the kind of innovative kind of uh, writing and recording
4: stuff that we did, but with his kind of uh, get some of those sounds. You know, when we started, Alex wasn't there. We started at Blank Tape, which had been a studio that I had found really through Busted Jones. And then you you worked on the Catherine Wheel there, and I worked on the Red and the Black, which was a disco studio. Mm -hmm. And back at that time period, New York studios were booked for two sessions. And so if you had to, like, get a new drum sound every night, that could take up a lot of time. Sure, yeah. And... At Blank Tape, they had a drum set nailed down in the corner, oh, cool. and the mics were already set up, uh-huh. and Chris brought in his own snare drum and cymbals, and so we had a drum hunt within a half an hour every mm-hmm. night, and that was like just sort of, we were working the night shift, and it was like, let's be efficient. And the engineer, Butch Jones, he was very much into disco music and doing commercials. He had a very, it was a fairly dry sounding room. Yeah, yeah. It was at the time period where people taped their wallet to the drums. And it was supposedly, if you put hundreds in the wallet, it sounded better. <laughs> 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 and so that was the, that was what we began with. And then when we went to the Muhammad's, it sort of opened up and Alex joined us.
1: That's one of the things that's so striking about that album is there is so much going on and yet all of it is so clear and somehow it feels like there's so much space left in the music despite the fact that there's constantly some new sound that you're hearing. I'm thinking about in making flippy floppy, for instance, there's this little the wow wow, wow that kind of happens as like a response to the vocal. All these elements fit together so perfectly. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about how you put those songs together.
5: Over time, we sort of learned, and uh, from live performance too, that you could place sounds and little punchy things and little sounds like what you describe in a little opening. Don't try and play all the time. Just put it right there. Mm-hmm, right yeah. there. there
3: was a little space for it. Cool. Yeah. Eno used to call that a musical event. (laughs) Epi-event, he
4: talked about. Epi-event, yeah. Yeah. When we were doing Remain in Light, it was very much muting because the tracks were played continuously all the way through. So we had also kind of learned this idea of, do remember, just that. And, you know, sometimes it's the only time it happens to the song. Yeah. But then we got a little more, like, let's think of it ahead of time so we don't have to play it all the way through the song. (laughs) And then... Could you talk a bit about uh,
1: putting the expanded version of the band together that we see in Stop Making Sense? How you found those players? What attracted you about them?
4: It grew out of the Remain and Light band, yeah. of course. And I recall that we had this opportunity to play the Heatwave Festival in Mossport, Canada, near Toronto, and then Central Park. And we were going to make probably twice as much money as we normally did. And I remember having a conversation with you. It was like, what What do we need? You know, we need a keyboard. We need backgrounds. We need this. Oh, my God. There's overlapping bass parts. Yeah. And I had been doing a lot of work with Busta Jones, and I had met Bernie and stuff like that. So I literally went off in the afternoon and hired everybody except for Steve Scales in wow. this one afternoon and came back. You know, and Boston was a help, of course, in this. And then uh, through Bernie, we found Steve Scales. Then when Adrian left, I think Quincy Jones recommended Alex Weir. He had played with the Brothers Johnson. Mm-hmm. And then when Dolette left, I think Bernie recommended Lynn, okay. who had been The Brides of Funkenstein. Right, and right. I'm not really sure who found Edna.
2: I think Lynn did.
4: Probably I think Lynn. so, yeah. So it was that organic way.
1: Yeah, okay. I think... From the beginning, you know, you guys were interested in R&B and funk and disco, and now you're, you know, playing with people who are, you know, responsible for creating some of these great records. Was there any sense of, like, uh,
3: we got to make sure we uh, keep up with these folks? Oh, yeah. They did kind of raise the bar (laughs) for everybody, I think. Steve Scales in particular, Bernie to a certain extent, but Steve Scales... Used to like get mad if we weren't super tight, he uh-huh.
2: <laughs> had He'd to, been a marine you had to be
3: <laughs> you had to be really good, or he would just
4: I just had this conversation with Alex where he was like, you know, we were in the pocket, I mean no I mean, I'm talking about in the pocket, you know <laughs> yeah,
1: of course, Bernie Worrell is such a presence in <laughs> the film, and you know just a genius of music, or was I should say. Were you guys listening to a lot of uh, P-Funk at the time? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> we love P-Funk.
2: Yeah.
5: So this is kind of like, oh, my God, one of our idols. We're, yeah. we're actually playing with mm-hmm. this guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, he's a brilliant musical director. Mm-hmm. And one of the beauties of his intelligent approach was that he just brought out the best in each person because he was so supportive of each person.
3: I remember I went to a P-Funk after-party. Were you with me, David? Uh, it was like down by the corner of Houston and Broadway, some discotheque mm. that existed there at the time. And uh, it was an after-party. They played Madison Square Garden. Oh, my God. And somehow I, I got in. I was, you know, thinking, well, when's the band coming? The band never showed up, I don't think. <laughs> but but anyway, they had these yes. big boxes of T-shirts. Mm-hmm. With Dr. Funkenstein on it. Somebody said, Take a t shirt. I said, Okay. I took one. Uh, and, and then I thought, well, I'll take one for Tina too. And I, so I took a second one. Next thing I know, some big guy grabbed me and said, <laughs> You tried to take two t shirts get the hell out of here, <laughs> and, and threw me out onto Broadway wow. with oh. no T-shirts. Around <laughs> Around when would that have been? Uh, that must have been like 1980.
1: Okay. So he didn't try to pull some uh, do you know who I am kind of stuff on him? No. The, <laughs>
3: it, was, it was a guy who wouldn't have cared.
1: <laughs> I remember
5: wow. touring with Bernie, and Bernie had perfect pitch. Mm. So he would hear like... A siren go by or car breaks or something on the street when we're on the bus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he had a little tiny keyboard and he would start playing along with it.
1: Oh, cool. (laughs) In perfect, in the right key. Yeah. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. In the film, you know, he's so expressive in this such a idiosyncratic way. Is that uh, how he
3: always was on stage? Mm -hmm. How it was, always. (laughs) (laughs) On stage and off stage. On the airplanes, he was hilarious.
2: He had a a (laughs) gift, I mean, uh, with people.
4: He just had this, such a gentleness about him. Mm -hmm. I think that aura just traveled ahead of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I was thinking about uh, the lamp, you know, which is obviously such a a powerful thing in the Mm -hmm. film. In that moment, David, when you nudge it this way and come around to catch it on the other side. I was thinking, you know, what if he dropped it?
5: I did drop it a lot. Did you? (laughs) Because we had to extend it so that it was kind of high enough to light our faces. Mm -hmm. I'd do it and then (laughs) you'd hear the sound of little smashing light bulbs (laughs) (laughs) when it hit the stage, which was not good. And what, what happens then? The show just goes on. Now we just go on. Uh-huh. I hope that the crew can sweep it up really quick, and I just have to improvise or come up with something else because the lamp dance was not going to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> were there other moments of, you know, that sort of uh, precarity where you're like, I, I hope we're able to pull off this thing.
2: Well, one is always thinking these. This, sure, you know, I mean, everything sure. that. Can go e- even wrong. when the
3: cameras aren't rolling. Yeah, it's it's like uh, I hope I can do this as well as I'm supposed to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: and if I make a mistake, I'll just duplicate it. and Then everybody will think I meant to do that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then it's so. Jazz. I mean, that's just the situation. But you you always hope that you've done your homework. You're prepared. We were very focused and having such a great time. I think the thing for me was to remember that I was a player on the stage, not just someone enjoying the show.
1: (laughs) Uh Uh (laughs) Tina, are you aware of this, like, fan cut of the movie? That's That's uh, what
2: I'm aware of Oh, I haven't seen that. (laughs) Yeah, it's like 45 minutes (laughs) of just anything that's got me. It is a little weird. It is. And I think I should be getting a Barbie doll or something (laughs) because Debbie Harry got one Uh and Sharon Stone got one. So it's just this kind of weird thing, you know, because the only reason I got into this band was because I love these guys and I wanted to see them succeed and I loved the music. I was never fond of being photographed Or, you know, having that kind of idolatry or anything like that, because that's, that's not my thing. Yeah. It took me years and years of my mother coaching me to get over shyness. Mm-hmm. I hated to even talk to the operator on the telephone because I was so shy. And like David sort of has this removed sense of who he was then to who he is now. I have that same feeling of, oh, well... Yeah, that's that's weird that people pay attention that way mm-hmm. to a person who's just trying to be part of a group.
1: I see,
3: yeah.
2: Because I'm not a diva, I'm not a rock star.
3: Actually, you are no, a rock star. No, no,
2: no I- <laughs>
3: <laughs> Just Just look at yourself in that movie. Yeah. I mean, what a babe. <laughs> and you're rocking as well.
2: Well, I did have a good time. I mean, it was a beautiful moment in time, and we're just so proud of it, that this is going to be our legacy. When we're long gone, that this is probably going to go on for a while. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, the Library of Congress has put it in their special...
3: They'll have to get the new, new version. i <laughs> will yeah. send them the new version. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you
5: one, and then 20 years from now, it'll be like a brain implant.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. We won't even need to go to a theater. Mm-hmm.
1: I look forward to it, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone. I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone—is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like holy, f-. he just <laughs> nailed this f- out of that. Sorry. <laughs> and America Ferrera. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to like be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
1: It's been a long time since you all have played together. And and David, I know you in particular have sometimes been sort of reluctant to uh, revisit the past too often. But I'm curious for all of you, What's your relationship to the Talking Heads now? How does it fit into your sense of how you see yourself, and and has that sort of changed now that you've gotten together working on this film?
3: Well, I identify as a Talking Head. Me too.
2: Uh, I, I hate it when journalists <laughs> say "formerly" of Talking Heads. Uh-huh. What are you talking about? But it is a little weird.
3: um, Well, you know, it was such a big part of our lives. Yes. We can never escape it.
5: (laughs) (laughs) But in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, I think when it became obvious that the film was going to come back out, Mm -hmm. going to have a new print, new sound, new distribution and all that, whatever differences we might have had, we just kind of put them aside and said, no, this is, we really believe in this. We're all united And we all feel the same way about this.
4: And I also want to give credit to A24, too. When there's new energy, you know, an artist signs to a new record company, and suddenly there's people, they're not just the same old people that have been working on your record. They're trying to prove that they can do something. And then it puts a burden back on us. It's like, you got to come with me. you got to help me do this. And I think we went, okay, we're up for that. Yeah.
1: Jerry, the other night in the questionnaire with Spike Lee, you were talking a bit about restoring the audio and talking about how sitting and listening to it in IMAX, you can hear the multi-track thing and almost adjust the faders in, in your head. Yeah, One of the things that really jumped out at me that I had never paid quite as much attention to in all the previous times I'd watched the film is on making Flippy Flappy. There's these guitar leads that you play that are... Unbelievably cool. Well, thank you. Uh, uh-huh. You know, you play a solo and then in between your vocal lines doing this call and response. <laughs> Jerry, I guess you'd be able to speak to this best. Were there certain things that you were hoping to sort of bring to the front? Were there elements that you were surprised to hear when you were going through the mix?
4: I I think that it's just when done correctly, you have the chance to isolate within a whole and we just wanted to make sure that we could, that you could feel everything and yet still feel it all congealed together. I mean, one of the main problems that I think some people have when they have opened up like that is it becomes kind of a little too disparate. Mm-hmm. You know, the film is also shot. It's not a lot of going out in the audience until the very end. Right, right, right. So we definitely wanted to keep the proscenium. We wanted to keep that image in front of you and pull it around. And, you know, there's an occasional thing where, you know, Lynn in heaven is singing this ethereal voice. She's not on stage. Yeah. So like that would be a time to use the ceiling and stuff like that. So we were judicious about mm, cool. how much you would want to bring it out because we wanted to make sure that you felt there's a band playing up there right, and I'm right, feeling right. the band and the bass and the, It's yeah. still coming off the stage.
1: Well, you did a wonderful job of that. <laughs> it's, it's really powerful. I wanted to talk a bit about the early days of the band's As someone who was not around in in New York in the mid and late 70s, there's this sense of just this incredible creative foment that was happening in music and art and theater. Did it feel that way when you were just getting started? Did you have the sense that there's something really special happening right now?
5: There was a lot going on. I think we felt that, that we were... Younger, So we were going out a lot, whether it was to art gallery openings or around the corner from where we lived to CBGBs or other clubs hearing Mm -hmm. music. And there was plenty for us (laughs) to take in. I don't know if we felt like, oh, this is a very unique cultural moment for myself. I
3: don't think I had that perspective. We moved to New York, at least uh, I did, in the fall, the autumn of 1974. And we all had a mutual friend, another RISD guy named Jamie Douglas, who had a loft at 52 Bond Street, which was like Caddy corner across the Bowery from CBGB's. Mm-hmm. And I went to Jamie's place the first day I was there in New York. And I said, well, he said, you know, Chris, I know you're interested in music and there's something going on over there at CBGB's. <laughs> you should check it out. Cool. And so I did. I went that night and there was like nothing happening. Nothing. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I heard some noise at the pool table in the back. So I, I walked back there and there was this guy with like a very short crew cut and a sharkskin suit and a purple tie, big like Elvis Presley sunglasses, the later Elvis uh-huh, uh-huh. type sunglasses. I said, is there going to be any music tonight? He said, to me in a very Spanish accent, no man, but come back this weekend. The Ramones will be here, uh-huh. and I thought, oh, cool, a Spanish group. <laughs> and and um, it was Arturo Vega. Oh, that's what I was thinking. It was Arturo the, the, who ended up being the graphic designer for the Ramones, okay. and, and he did all their, and their light shows. L- lighting designer. But anyway, I came back. On the weekend, and I saw the Ramones. And uh, maybe you were with me, David and Tina. I, I think you probably were. And the Ramones at that stage were not clearly developed. Like Johnny was still wearing uh, Lurex pants, <laughs> really tight Lurex <laughs> trousers. And they hadn't adopted the uh, motorcycle jacket uh-huh. yet. They were playing these really amazing songs like Beat on the Brat and Blitzkrieg Bop, but they hadn't gotten super tight yet, and they would stop and argue with each other in the <laughs> middle of a song. <laughs> it was so amazing. great. I thought, this is like a, the perfect conceptual art piece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then later, we saw Patti Smith. And, just
5: her and Lenny sometimes, right?
3: Yeah, it was just her and Lenny Kay at that time. There was, wasn't a full band yet. And then we saw television and uh, eventually Blondie. I did feel like there was something happen- because I, I had felt like, oh, if only we could find a place like the Cavern Club that the Beatles yeah. had and Jerry and the Pacemakers had. And- yeah. Star yeah. 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 The Star Club. The Star Club. If only we could find a place like that. And uh, I realized CBGB's was a place Absolutely. like That's that. That's exactly Absolutely.
4: what, yeah. The other thing is, that, of course, there was... This thing that had sort of come out of the 50s, you know, the cedar bar over in the East Village where the abstract expressionists hung out or the folk scene on Bleaker Street and stuff like that. So at least to me, because I had come down here with the modern lovers and stuff like that, this had felt like just kind of a continuum. One of the most important things is things were cheap. Yeah. I mean, New York had overbuilt and there was kind of a recession going on all over the country. And so you you could rent things for cheap and it wasn't that expensive to go to eat and And so artists flocked, and it it, it created this, uh, you know, sort of homogeneous unit of creative people that kind of gathered in a place that was, you know, not where the richer people wanted to live, but it was a great place to live. And and then bars and galleries and everything sprung up around it. I was uh,
1: thinking about Stop Making Sense, the sense of it as this... um Kind of multidisciplinary, somewhat conceptual thing, which seems uh, unusual for a rock band to try to pull off. When you were doing it, did did you have a sense of how big it was going to be?
2: There was some trepidation because David had this idea and he had made drawings. And I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is like a Bob Wilson project yeah, yeah. and we started thinking about, oh, how are we going to pay for it and It just seemed huge. I mean, we did end up having to have three eighteen wheeler trucks and yeah, and every stage had to be a minimum of sixty feet wide, forty feet deep, that sort of thing it It seemed huge, but then there was just this will to do it. And we had a wonderful manager, Gary first, who said, look, it's a good idea. I'll find the money. We'll get this done. Then when Jonathan Demi, the director, came and said, I love this concert. I think it needs to be filmed. And he was right. We said, yes, of course. you're right. There might have been a little trepidation, the
5: fact that it begins a, a little bit slowly, like with just me and then Tina and I. And we might have thought, oh, the audience is going to go, where's the band? Where's yeah. the band? <laughs> we came here to dance. Uh, you know, it starts with the, an empty stage with yeah. no lighting, really.
1: Yeah, which is so
5: arresting. But I mean, it, you, you we didn't did also, know that yet at the Yeah, and if you yeah. didn't
1: know that, didn't
5: expect that, Yeah, you might have gone... Boy, they're really cutting back on trying to save some money here. (laughs) Just the two of them and uh, no
1: lights. (laughs) For uh, those of us who are fans of your work, it's an unexpected thing to uh, see you all in the same room promoting this film. And I'm just curious, I have to ask, might anything more come of uh, this reunion?
2: We're just savoring the moment, you know? I mean, we're just so happy that it's resulted in this wonderful thing that's lasted 40 years. Absolutely. And we're not really looking too far into the future. I mean, we might be standing on the corner and a bus will knock us down. So we're we're super glad we're alive. We're all four here. We're alive to enjoy this and enjoy the moment.
4: Wonderful. There's no question, though that it revives the joy we had together. Yeah. I think each one of us watching the film, we feel the joy, not just the four of us, but everybody that was on stage and the crew. And when the crew comes out of the air, yeah, so like, right. oh, you know. <laughs> and so it's certainly tugging on the heartstrings of how much I loved everybody. Yeah. Love to hear that.
2: I love you too, Jerry. I remember, I
4: remember
5: uh, not too many years ago being on tour with St. Vincent and... Carrie Brownstein was traveling on the bus with us mm-hmm. sometimes. And she, at one point she had a phone video. She said, this is a high school in Seattle, and this is their music project, the music class and right over the theater class. Did stop making sense so from cool. beginning to end. Wow. Oh. The whole thing. Wow. 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 I didn't watch the whole thing, but I'm just kind of like, oh, my God. They, they, everything,
2: every
1: little yeah. part of oh, it, they so did.
5: Cool. That's so <laughs> cool. Wow.
2: That's good.
5: That's
1: great. <laughs> um, well, I think we're about out of time. Just wanted to say thank you so much to all of you for taking the time to do this. It has been a real treat to talk thank
4: to you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you thank Andy. You.
0: Yeah. It was lovely. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Conde Nast. Mark Yoshizumi, Elia Einhorn, and Katie Lau at 3DB are our producers. Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Grimoglia is our music supervisor. And a special thanks to Pitchfork's Andy Cush and Jill Mapes. If you want even more talking heads, you can check out our reviews of their classic albums on pitchfork.com. Thanks for listening.